Here we are in John, continuing forward. John chapter 5, verse 1. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. Lord Jesus, we come before you so thankful for your word. Thankful that you saw fit to inspire John to specifically write down these signs, these miracles, these wonders. And with each and every one, we pause and recognize there is something great going on here. Something great, Lord Jesus, about you. That's what we want to see this morning. Help us to see you. Help us to keep our eyes on you, even through the study, through the reading, in our understanding. And to not be distracted by other things, Lord, but to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We ask your Holy Spirit to teach and lead us through this now. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I was a young father and a young pastor in my mid-twenties or so, mid to late-twenties, living in Virginia with Cheryl uh, and with Corey and Hannah. They were toddlers at the time, about one and, and three years old. Corey was three, Hannah was one. The rest of my kids were still twinkles at that point. We were living in a rented townhouse in Fairfax, Virginia. The second story of this townhouse was a three-story townhouse. Really cool, cool place to live. And the second story was the main floor. If you came in through the front, you had to go up uh, kind of a double flights of steps to get into that second story, into the front door. The garage was underneath, and then the bedrooms were up on the third floor, way up on the top. And out the middle section, that second floor, we had our own little portico. Our own deck, we had sliding glass doors and we could go out there and we spent a lot of our times in the summers out there and we had, we kept for the kids a little kiddie pool that we would fill up and the kids could splash around there in the long, hot East Coast summers. Down below in that same area, we had a little 10 by 10 backyard, tiny little area, basically for a garden and and kind of a, a back stoop, but not much more than that. One morning... On my way out the door, Cheryl stopped me and asked me to go down and get the hose and feed it up to her through the, through the deck because she was going to fill up the pool for the kids to play. Now, you need to understand, I was already dressed for work. Okay, I, I was heading into the office. This was Fairfax, Virginia, a bit more formal in terms of church environment than we are up here. And so I was in my dockers, I was in my really nice shoes, my, my button-down shirt, my tie. 
It's a youth pastor, mind you, but I still had to dress like that. And so I said, fine, I'll, I'll get the hose, I'll get it up, but I, I just don't want to get dirty. So I go down there, and I get the hose, and I begin to fish it up to her. Meanwhile, Cheryl went out on the deck to receive the hose and realized the pool was still full of filthy water. Not thinking about, or so she claimed later, not realizing, not remembering I was directly underneath her, she dumped the pool. <laughs> Baptized, but not sanctified. I was soaked to the skin. I was drenched to the dockers. I mean, my my tie, my shoes, my pack of gum in my front pocket, even my driver's license in my wallet was soaking wet. She completely drenched me. True story. In Jerusalem, at the pool of Bethesda, Jesus made quite a splash. Not exactly like the splash that Cheryl made with me, but he made quite a splash at that pool. The sentence he used was simple enough, casual enough, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Any parent might say that to a child. Any Anyone out camping might mention that as they're packing up, getting ready to go. Nothing really special in the words. Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. But he had said it before. This was not the first time Jesus had spoken these words. In fact, He made just as big a splash in the Galilee as He went about healing another lame man there. You may recall the story. He was in Capernaum at the time, holding a Bible study in a packed little house. The room was full. People were standing in the doorway when suddenly, as Jesus is in the middle of His exposition, little bits of tile and flecks of ceiling straw began to flutter down. Next thing you know, sunlight and a pallet bearing a lame man was lowered, kind of Mission Impossible style, lowered down through the roof by his friends right in front of Jesus. What an amazing story. And what did Jesus do? What did Jesus say? Well, what would you do? He immediately forgave the man and not for making a hole in the ceiling. He forgave the man saying, Son, your sins are forgiven. Splash! (laughs) Your sins are forgiven. And a wave of disapproval rolled through the Jewish lawyers, the scribes who were gathered there. And so Jesus looked around and He said to them, Mark chapter 2, verse 9, Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven. Or to say, Get up! Pick up your pallet and walk. But so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And He got up immediately, picked up the pallet, and went out in the sight of everyone. So they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. And they hadn't. One simple sentence that changed two lives. Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Now I mention that because these two stories are strangely similar. Obviously because of what Jesus said, speaking the same exact words to the two different men. But to begin with, in both stories, neither man had a leg to stand on. That's the obvious similarity. Both were sinners in need of a Savior. 
in both situations, both in Capernaum and as we read in our text today, in Jerusalem at the pool of Bethesda, in both situations the Jewish leaders were left dripping with disapproval. But there's a far greater correlation between these two stories, and we're going to get to that in just a little bit. But let's go back and walk this through. In John chapter 5, it's the third of seven signs. I told you before, there are seven signs in this gospel, not including the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the greatest sign ever given. There were seven signs, seven miracles, seven wonders that Jesus performed that John calls out. Now, John also tells us he did far more than this. John chapter 20 at the end of the chapter says, man, you can't even write down all the things that Jesus said and did. But John chose seven, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and this is number three. Remember that these seven signs are chosen because each one of them reveal to us something of the nature of Jesus. And that's why John picked these out. He's not trying to be chronological or biographical as much as intentional in showing us who Jesus is. And so in the first verse, again, it says, After these things there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. We don't know which feast this was. A lot of different ideas. Some lean toward Passover. And if it's the Passover that Jesus went up to Jerusalem for, well, then there would be four Passovers listed or mentioned in the Gospel of John. Four Passovers means the entire length of Jesus' ministry would be closer to three and a half years rather than three years. If this is Passover. We don't know. There were three major feasts, seven altogether, but three major feasts that all of the Jewish men were required to come up to Jerusalem and, and, and experience and enjoy together there at the temple. There were far more feasts, obviously, that went on during the year, and Jesus had a tendency to go up to many different feasts, not just the required ones. He tended to be there. If there was a feast happening, Jesus liked the food. <laughs> We know Jesus liked a good meal. Won't get into that right now. John doesn't specify. There is interesting evidence that can be made for this particular feast being the Feast of Trumpets, which would have significance somewhere in the story. And you Bible students, if you want to get in and dig a little bit and think that one through, it's called the head of the year. The Jews call it Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, the Festival of Trumpets. I only mention that because any time the trumpet is mentioned, it gets me a little excited for what Jesus is going to do. 1 Corinthians 15.52 In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Talk about getting your new legs. <laughs> My grandmother Irene, who died back in 1999, actually she, uh, she passed away, she's living with Jesus. And she told me in the last year of her life, she was looking forward to getting her new legs. She had arthritis really badly to the point that the last few years of her life, she couldn't go up and down stairs at all. Getting our new legs when that trumpet sounds, when we will be changed. We will not be lame any longer. And for some of you with strong legs that are still lame, you won't be lame any longer. You know what I'm saying? But whatever the feast, whatever was happening, whatever was taking place, Jesus went up to the Jerusalem for it. 
And in verse 2 says, There was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. Man, what John gives us in one sentence is remarkable. The amount of information that you just got downloaded in that single verse. Think about this. We know about the sheep gate. Sheep gates mentioned in other places in Scripture back in Nehemiah. Chapter 3, verse 1. When the exiles had returned, the temple was rebuilt. And they began to really get into rebuilding the city and rebuilding the wall around the city. And Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1 says, Eliashib the high priest arose with his brothers the priests and built the sheep gate. And they consecrated it and hung its doors. The sheep gate was on the northern wall of the city. North of the Temple Mount, actually north and slightly east, but up in that direction. Called the Sheep Gate because we believe just outside of the Sheep Gate, they kept pens of sheep. Sheep were kept there that you could purchase if you traveled a distance, came into Jerusalem to offer sacrifice. You could go right to the Sheep Gate and purchase a lamb there to bring up to the temple for the sacrifices. In addition uh, to the sheep being held there, it was also at this gate that the lambs were inspected as they were brought in to be appropriate for temple sacrifice, the sheep gate. And there, just inside the sheep gate, were the great pools of Bethesda. Pools of Bethesda. Actually, there were two back to back together, uh, one on the other end. Today, the pools of Bethesda have been excavated, actually have been excavated for quite a while. If you've been to uh, Israel with us on the tour, you've seen the pools of Bethesda. They sit right outside of a church there called St. Anne's Church. We often go into St. Anne's Church because the construction of this church is amazing. The acoustics are absolutely stunning. You go in there and you begin to sing together and we'll sing a song a cappella and it just, you hit that last note and stop and it just rings. It's amazing. But that's not part of the story. The church wasn't there at the time. The pools were, however, there. The pool had been there for several centuries before Jesus came on the scene. In fact, we can look all the way back to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 3, and we believe he's talking about these pools, the pools of Bethesda, when the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shir Yashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. The highway to the fuller's field. Again, north end of Jerusalem, the upper pool up there by the sheep gate, just inside the sheep gate. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 22, verse 11, the Lord said something else. I find this interesting. Because the Lord is rebuking a bit King Hezekiah, who had fortified all of Jerusalem against the threat of Assyria. They had broken down houses in the city and taken the, the material from these homes to build up the walls and strengthen and fortify and had even done some things with, with the water system. You may remember Hezekiah built a tunnel to make sure that spring, the Gihon Spring could, could feed water into Jerusalem even if they were under siege. He had done all this work and the Lord sent Isaiah to him. And Isaiah said, Isaiah 22.11, You made a reservoir between the two walls for the waters of the old pool. The old pool, probably the upper pool, the pool of Bethesda. But he says this, But you did not depend on Him who made it, nor did you take into consideration Him who planned it long ago. 
The rebuke was, Hezekiah, you're building up this, this pool, you're building up this reservoir, you're building up the walls, and you haven't even been to the Lord, maker of the pool, maker of the waters, protector of His people. Go to the Lord. And how often do we do that? We build up the walls. We siphon off the water. We figure out other ways. We make our plans. We try and figure out the solutions to our problems. And the Lord could just as easily say to us, You did all this stuff, but you haven't come to me. You haven't talked to me. You haven't taken into consideration Him who planned it long ago. Who planned what? Well, in our case, who planned what's going on in our lives. Who planned to lead us through the, the journey, the, the valleys, the struggles, the challenges that, that we have. I, w- I heard the song the other day, perhaps you've heard it, the new Laura Story song. I don't even think it's that new. The song's called Blessings. And I don't even remember the words now, but it really touched me, brought tears to my eyes, because she talked about how perhaps the blessings really are in the sorrows. Perhaps the tears are how we get washed. Perhaps when we're praying for all these good things, when the bad things happen, that's where the blessing is. The thing is, the Lord has planned long ago to see you through. The question is, are we going to trust Him for that? But the other thing I find amazing, Isaiah says to Hezekiah, you did not take into consideration Him who planned it long ago. Who planned what? Who planned the pool. And we don't have anywhere in Scripture where we know what God planned the pool for. Except perhaps our story this morning. The pool of Bethesda. That God had plans from long ago for what would take place at that pool on this particular Sabbath. Now, Bethesda was two large pools, as I said. A northern pool and a southern pool that bumped up against each other. They were 75 feet across each, together 300 feet in length. Picture end-to-end Olympic-sized swimming pools, and that's the size of the pools of Bethesda. It's not just a little pond here, gang. This was a a big expanse there on the north end of the city of Jerusalem. There were five porticos, one on either side of each pool. We know this from archaeology. And a huge stone portico that went across the center of both pools. And these porticos, these porches, would provide covering and shade, a respite from the Jerusalem heat in the summertime. A place where people could sit and rest there by the waters of these pools. Five porticos. Last week we talked about this. What does the number five represent biblically? Grace. And we see that. You can study that through. Just go track the number five through the Scriptures and see how often it has to do with or is written into a situation where there is grace or mercy offered up. And that's how we, we see this, this, this five used in again and again for grace. Well, that's interesting to me. Five porticos at the pool of Bethesda. And Bethesda in Hebrew. Bet, meaning house of, like Bethlehem, house of bread. Beth, Esda. Bet, house of, Esda is from the root word in the Hebrew, chesed. Which is that Hebrew word for Grace. We see it translated loving kindness, translated mercy. He comes up to the house of mercy. Keep that in mind. For it was to this covered shady place that the destitute and the desperate came in hopes of healing. Verse 3. In these, that is in the shade of these porticos, near these pools, lay a multitude of those who were sick 
and blind and lame and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters? For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Did that really happen? I mean, it doesn't happen now. In, in these days, the angel stirring up a pool to heal someone, that's, that's a little odd. Did it really take place? Is this legit? Well, I can tell you the people sure thought it was. Or there wouldn't have been multitudes of lame people lying around the pools. They certainly believed it in the day. Certainly thought there was something to this stirring of the waters. Now, archaeologically, we happen to know the pools were fed by a system of stone pipes that ran roughly six miles just southwest of Bethlehem out of greater pools, a huge reservoir over there known as Solomon's Pools. And the water would then flow through those pipes and feed the two pools of Bethesda. But more than that, there's evidence, again archaeologically, of an intermittent spring that would at times send water rushing into the pools and cause the water to stir and to bubble up. So perhaps it's just a natural phenomenon. Add to that the interesting note, and some of your Bibles have this in the margins, that the latter part of verse 3 and all of verse 4, some think were added later. That some scribes said, we need to explain this stirring of the waters. That what the original Greek said was, in these lay a multitude who were sick and blind and lame and withered. And then you're at verse 5, and a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. Well, that's interesting. So is this an addition to Scripture and not actually accurate? The reason why it's in parentheses in some of your Bibles, and the reason why some people question its validity, is we don't have any what they call extant manuscripts that contain that verse and a half. Extant is just a a scholar's word. It means remaining. We don't have any remaining manuscripts. The earliest manuscripts we have where the latter part of verse 3 and verse 4 show up is after 400 A.D., So nothing before 400 that has this verse included. And so the immediate response of the scholars is often, well, then it's just not legit. It wasn't there. It was penned in later. We don't have these in the original. Let me just say this. Just because we don't have them in the original or we don't have the most original copy, all that really means is we just don't have the original copy. We just don't have a hard copy. It doesn't mean that this verse is automatically out. So I wouldn't be so quick to toss it. Historically and biblically, I can at least tell you this much. The latter part of verse 3 and verse 4 are accurate. They are accurate. At least in terms of what the people believed at the time was going on when the water was stirred up. That they believed... That an angel came down and stirred the water and the first one in got healed and the last one in was a rotten egg. That was pretty much the, the, the sense. How do we know it's biblically accurate? Because down in verse 7, the lame man himself obviously believed that what he needed was to get into that water. But he had no one to get him into the water when the water was stirred. Therefore, he continued to be lame. 
It may not be a legend at all. It may not be superstition. There may be something to this. And I leave it to you to work it out. But Hebrews 1.14 tells us, Are they, that is angels, not all ministering spirits, sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? And do we not, especially in Old Testament times, and by the way, this was Old Testament times. Jesus had not yet gone through the passion of the cross. The church had not yet been ushered in in the new age of the church. So we're still in, technically speaking, the Hebrew Old Testament times. But either way, angels were active then. Angels were active after the church was started. Angels were involved and have been involved on the earth. And Peter even says, hey, be careful because you might be visited by angels unaware. Well, that's just weird, Rick. Welcome to faith. (laughs) So, Rick, are you saying you believe this? Well, I I know Revelation 14.7 tells us to worship Him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. So you got angels, you got springs. The Bible is, is sufficient in both. It's entirely possible, entirely likely that this is the case. I think that we at least have to entertain the possibility that the latter part of verse 3 and all of verse 4 are, if nothing else, accurate, if not original. If they're not, it doesn't change anything because the story still holds up because of what the lame man himself says. That's not the point of the story, though. Here lay the sick and the blind and the lame and the withered. Talk about sheep without a shepherd. They're inside the sheep gate, lying at the pools, waiting to be healed. And on this day, it was Jesus, the Lamb of God, who entered in through the sheep gate and came to the five porticos of Bethesda, the house of grace. Verse 5. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. Bible students, how long did the children of Israel wander in the wilderness? I'm hearing 40. I'm hearing 38. Which one is it? Well, you could probably go with both. It's 40 years if you want to count from when they left Egypt. It's 38 years if you want to count when they left Sinai because they traveled from Egypt to Mount Horeb, actually, and there received the Ten Commandments and there built the tabernacle. And we believe from when they left Egypt to when they got the tabernacle and actually got started up again, it was about two years span of time. So then they would continue on from there and they would wander 38 years in the wilderness. As a matter of fact, Moses confirms this for us. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 14. Now the time that it took for us to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the brook Sered was 38 years. Children of Israel, wandering 38 years, lost, lame, if you will, needing the care of God. And here's this man. A son of Israel, lying here for 38 years in need of the care of God. And verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? I think sometimes you get to verse 6, and if you've heard this story before, We are so interested in the man who had been lying there 38 years and thinking about why he had been there so long that we miss, again, the point of the story, which is Jesus. 
And we were talking about this. Jim brought it up in our shepherds meeting Thursday night. I thought the timing was interesting. And Jim said, did you notice what it says? When Jesus saw him and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? Jesus saw him, knew everything there was to know about him, and offered him healing. This is what Jesus does. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Now there are a couple of ways we could take Jesus' statement here when He says, do you wish to get well? And I think actually both work. One could be a gentle rebuke of the man's apathy. 38 years. Do you wish to get well? Do you want to get well? And I often, many times over the years, that's kind of the the perspective I've had, but that's more of a human perspective, I think. Rebuking him for not getting on the stick, not at least rolling into the water. I mean, do what you got to do to get healed, man. I think it's more likely that it was simply a genuine offer of healing. That Jesus goes straight to him. Notice, he goes straight to this one man. The Bible tells us there's a multitude of sick and lame and dying people around these pools. Jesus just goes right to the one man. Why? We'll talk about that on Wednesday night. <laughs> but he goes to the man. And he says, do you wish to get well? A, a, an offer of healing. I believe just genuine. I, I think he really was just looking at this man who needed to be healed. Do you wish to get well? Do you wish to get well? Jesus always invites us into the process of healing. He always invites us to receive healing. You remember on the other Sabbath when He said to the man who was inside the the synagogue who had the shriveled hand, Jesus didn't just say, your hand is healed. He said, stretch forth your hand. The man had to respond. And in the stretching forth of His hand, He was healed. Jesus calls us to respond to healing. To invite healing. To welcome healing. And if we don't... (laughs) Then you got to wonder if we really wish to be healed. Jesus, I believe, would employ whatever was necessary depending on the condition of the heart of the person. So if this man did, in fact, need a gentle rebuke, perhaps that's what Jesus was doing, gently rebuking him. Do you wish to get healed? Or if the man simply needed the offer, then it was simply an offer. You know, be it a Nathaniel, be it a Nicodemus, be it a nameless woman of Samaria, be it a nobleman of Capernaum, in every situation we see Jesus reaching out uniquely to the individual. It's how He works. He knows you, He knows me so intimately that He meets us right where we are. Well, this hapless, hopeless man is lying there and Jesus says, Do you wish to get well? Verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Now, pause for a moment from looking at Jesus and look at the man, and I have three words for you. Excuses, excuses, excuses. He just gives excuses. Well, I'd like to get healed, but I wouldn't be lying here all this time except... You know, other people, they just run over me. They all go before me. You know, most excuses are lame. (laughs) In 38 years, he couldn't get someone to give him a timely shove. You know, all that time. How can walking not be at the top of this guy's to-do list? 
Excuses, excuses, excuses. Why do people put off healing? Why do people sidestep opportunity to come to God, to talk to Him, to seek His wisdom, if not His hand of healing? It is remarkable sometimes the excuses we make to put off Jesus. In just a few minutes, I'm going to invite you to come forward for prayer. And you know, it's interesting because I said this to Les on Wednesday night. In a church of two to 300 people in, in a service, you would think there's somebody who needs help. You would think among us there's somebody who needs to pray. Who needs Jesus in some way or another. And yet the tendency in most churches, and I'm not just laying this on the bridge, the tendency in most churches is when we come up at the end, when we offer an altar call or an invitation to come to the Lord at the end, it's really time to zip up the Bible cover, check the watch, and think about where you're going for lunch. You're already out the door. This used to happen on Wednesday nights. When I was a youth pastor, I would come home at about 6 o'clock and have to be back at the building at 7 o'clock. And Cheryl finally one day just told me, why don't you just stay at the building? And I said, well, I want to come home and see you and the kids. She said, but you don't come home. You're already out the door. And sometimes we are already out the door. We're already thinking of the next thing. And we're ignoring Jesus' invitation for healing. We have people up front. By the way, people who are no different than anyone else. They just happen to raise their hand. They happen to volunteer. I think a few of the people on the prayer team probably raised their hand to ask where the restroom was and ended up on the prayer team. They didn't know. (laughs) We are all in this together, gang. Myself included. You know, you call me Pastor Rick. If you have to, okay. But we are all in need of a Savior. We are all in need of prayer. We are all in need of healing, in need of direction, in need of wisdom. Man, when we have people standing up here and we say, Hey, come and get prayer. If you need some help from the Lord, come up and get prayed for. Why would you put off what God can do for you right now? And that's my appeal to you all. But it's just a reality. We have a tendency to make excuses as to why we don't bring our stuff to the Lord. As to why we don't respond to Him. What's your excuse? Well, no one will help me. No one's paying attention to me. Everyone else goes in before me. You know what? That's the language of the victim. And honestly, most victims like their status. There's something oddly comforting about lying by the pool of victim. Day in and day out, nothing changes. You know what to expect. You know what it's going to be like. You get comfortable with your self-pity. It's not so bad being lame. Especially if you, you know, if your palate is made from memory foam. (laughs) Because a lot of our lameness has to do with our memory of things that's happened to us. And so we lie there and we think about it and we don't move and we don't respond. And all the while Jesus is going, look, I can make it better. I can show you which way to go. If nothing else, I can pour the comfort of my Spirit upon you. Would you have that? Would you receive it? Do you wish to get well? 
You know what Jesus did with self-pity? At least in this case, He completely ignores it. Well, no one will put me in. No one's there. Everybody goes in before me. And Jesus just overlooks completely what He's saying. Doesn't even respond to it. And in verse 8, Jesus said to him, Get up. Pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. (laughs) Was there something angelic in the stirred waters of the pool? I don't know. But here's the thing. Biblically, it goes a long way in portraying the hopelessness of the old law. Now just think about this for a minute. The law of God itself was perfect. You know, Psalm 19 tells us the law of the Lord is, is perfect, flawless. If we could only get into it. If someone would only help us get into the law, get into the pool. If someone would only show us how to swim. Problem is, you get into the pool of the law and it's too deep and you can't tread that water long enough. And that is the ugly undercurrent of this story. Look at verse 10. The Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. You've got to be kidding me. That's their response. As if the 613 laws of Torah were not enough, were not difficult enough for humanity to keep, the rabbis came along and they added thousands upon thousands of pages of legal rulings and additional regulations. It was like the health care law, man. <laughs> Talk about adding pork to a bill. That's not even kosher. <laughs> The traditions of the elders actually distinguish 39 unique categories of work which must not be done on Shabbat. 39 categories! How do you keep up with that? Dude, just put a dunce hat on me and stand me in the corner. That's all I can do. Without violating Shabbat. And they miss the entire purpose of the day. Why did Jesus keep stirring it up on the Sabbath? Why did Jesus keep healing people on the Sabbath? Why would He do this? Just avoid the one day, Lord, and you won't have all these problems. It's because He came as the Sabbath. He came with the rest. He came radically different than what they had interpreted the law to be. The law was simply there to show us how badly we needed Jesus. And so He heals on the Sabbath. But verse 11 going on, Tells us the man answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. See, that's the way it works. Jesus is the one who heals you. And once He does so, He says, Okay, now let's get going. Don't lie around anymore. Don't lay there in the memory foam of your life, the pallet of your history. Get up and walk. Walk in the Spirit. Let's move forward. Well, they asked Him, verse 12, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Why would Jesus do that? It was not yet his time. He saw the man, he saw the need, he met the need, he healed him, and then he just slipped off into the crowd and disappeared. (laughs) So cool. I wouldn't have done that. I would have been there going, What? (laughs) 
Jesus, amazing, slips away. And afterward, we're told in verse 14, Jesus found him in the temple, I believe intentionally, and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. We can't leave this. Don't sin anymore, Jesus says. And it is because of this that some speculate it was this man's own sin that rendered him lame in the first place. Something he had done. Fair enough, sin makes everybody lame. Sin is the reason why we are lame. Why all people are lame. Why we do lame things and think lame thoughts. And work out and live in lame behavior. But you gotta think about this. What what kind of a sin would make this guy lame? I mean, maybe he fell out of a window on a bank heist. (laughs) Nowadays, if you do that, you just sue the bank. (laughs) Maybe he got drunk and walked in front of a moving donkey. (laughs) DWI. Donkey while intoxicated. Why? What was it? Don't sin anymore, Jesus says. Here's the thing. John is not saying consider the lame man. He's saying look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. The story is about Jesus. And what do we see here? We see a Savior who first says you're healed and then says don't sin anymore. And not the other way around. See, we think the other way around. Stop your sinning, and maybe I'll heal you. Correct your behavior, and then I will treat you well. That's the human way. That's the flesh. Jesus comes along and says, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. First, He heals. Then He says, Now, now stop your sinning. It is the healing of God that gives us the power to practice righteousness. It's the healing of God that allows us to stop sinning. The healing always comes first. Salvation first, sanctification after. And as we've seen and talked about, every single world religion does it the other way around. Everyone. It's always salvation is earth up. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps rather than heaven down. With Jesus, it's heaven down. Salvation first. Sanctification next. The problem is, religion is a pool that no one can tread. It's a pool you cannot get into. It's 100 feet deep. You can't tread the water long enough to prove yourself good enough to be saved. Which is why Jesus first says, be healed. By the way, have you noticed all the water in the Gospel of John so far? It's almost like a character in the Gospel. In chapter 2, Jesus commands the big stone purification vessels to be filled with water that He then changes into wine. In John chapter 4, He meets a woman at Jacob's well. And there He offers her living water. A water that will allow her to never thirst. In John chapter 7, we'll get there at the Feast of Tabernacles. He stands up on the last day of the feast, probably immediately after the priestly ritual of the water libation, and he cries out, John 7.37, If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. 
He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And here in John chapter 5, Jesus heals this man at the pool. Poolside with Jesus. What's the point? All of these water sources, gang, are old school. The water in the purification pots. The water at Jacob's well. The water in the pools of Bethesda. The water libation are all pictures, if you will, of old school theology. They are all temporary. They all are like the law. They will leave you thirsty. They will overwhelm you. They will, you'll just get unclean again. You can keep aspects of the law, but eventually you're going to get unclean again. And in each one of these cases, there's an amazing spiritual contrast between the old school water, Jacob's well, and the fresh living water that comes through Jesus. A water of healing, a water of sanctification, obviously a water of salvation. And once you receive this water, you do not thirst in condemnation anymore. There's not enough water in Jerusalem, in Israel, or in the world to do what Jesus Christ can do. And when He did it, He made a huge splash. When He did what? Listen. When He did what He did with both lame men at Capernaum And at Bethesda. Verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. Was he tattletaling? No, I think he was just telling. I think a lot of the Jewish people in the day assumed their Jewish leaders would want to know Messiah was there. They assumed wrong. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Go to Israel today. Israelis today, every Friday, and I actually really like it. It's endearing to me. I love it. Walking around Jerusalem on Shabbat because you hear it. Every Jew you you come across, which is everybody, pretty much, says to you, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. It is the Friday greeting in Israel. Shabbat Shalom. Sabbath peace. Sabbath peace to you. And when Jesus healed on another Sabbath in the Galilee, He appealed to that principle of of shalom, which is much more than peace. Shalom in the Hebrew mindset, it's it's an entire well-being. It's peace, yes. It's rest, absolutely. It's, It's contentment. It's the whole package. And Jesus appealed to that. He he healed on another Sabbath in the Galilee, Mark chapter 2, verse 27, and He said this, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Do you get that? Do you understand what He's saying? The Sabbath was given to you, not, not to hinder you, but to help you. God said, I want you to set apart this day. It, not as a, a bummer, but as a blessing. It's for you. You are not for it. And they flipped it around. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, God said, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh, it's the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle, 
or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Shabbat. That wonderful day. And they are getting after Him because He was healing on the Sabbath. Because He made a lame man capable of walking and violated the rabbinical law by telling the man to pick up his pallet and walk was was something you could not do on Sabbath. You never bought a bed on the Sabbath day. Not if you had to haul it somewhere. Don't do it! And so they start picking on Jesus and going after Him. And you might say, if you're sharp, if you're paying attention... You might say, wait a minute. When Jesus healed the lame man in Capernaum, it wasn't on the Sabbath. You're right. It wasn't. So what's the big splash that's the same between the two stories? My friends, the Sabbath was not the bigger issue. The Jews were making it a big issue. But when Jesus healed the lame man at Bethesda on the Sabbath, He argued for something higher than human rest. What's that? God's work. Look at verse 17. But He answered them and said, My Father is working until now. And I myself am working. Put it in the context. They're saying, You are violating the Sabbath. And Jesus said, God's working. Got a problem with that? It's Sabbath. And God is at work. And it was a problem among the rabbis. In fact, if you go back in rabbinical literature, the comments and the, and the writings and the studies of God working on the Sabbath are, are many. Does God keep His own laws? Does He make the laws for us and then step back and say, well, I'm above the law? Of course He is. He's God. He would be. Although, Jesus kept the law perfectly. God's law, not man's. Psalm 121 verse 1 tells us the following, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. When is that, Lord? 24-7. God doesn't take a day off. Jesus says, my Father is working until now, and I myself am working. Well, how can God rest if His providential care is constant? Is he breaking the Sabbath? There is actually a rabbinical argument that that came out of Jesus' day. Four rabbis who went up to Rome and were questioned about this whole issue of the Sabbath and God working on the Sabbath. And this was their response. In essence, they said, since God carried no load outside the limits of his own dwelling, which is heaven and earth, and he lifted nothing to a height which exceeded his own stature... Therefore, all he did fell within their interpretation of what was admissible on the Sabbath. Rationalization. Rabbinical rationalization. And that's lame. That is just lame. Let's take this a step further. Tell me, when did God... 
he began his, his seventh day rest, right? On, on the seventh day, after the six days of creation, the Bible says on the seventh day, he rested. Here's the question. When did that day end for the Lord? It never has. It never has. Do you realize that right now, God is still in Sabbath rest? And working? Providentially? And interacting in this world? It is still Shabbat for the Lord? Where do you get that? The Hebrew writer, chapter 4, verse 9 says, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest, the Lord has Himself also rested from His works as God did from His. The one who entered His rest, Jesus entered His rest just as God entered His rest. When the world was created, God entered His rest. When Jesus resurrected, when He ascended, He entered His rest. They are in their rest, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and yet their rest is ongoing work as they work in the world. As the Spirit is searching out hearts and minds, people to be saved, As the Father continues to give His providential care. As the Son, Colossians 1 tells us, continues to hold all things together. Boy, I'll tell you what. For all the things going on in the world right now, it's Jesus who's keeping it together. When He lets go, it's when it's going to blow apart. So they're still at work, and yet they're at rest. Gang, the Father invites you, invites me today, any day, into His Shabbat. But it's a working holiday. And Jesus said, my father is working straight through. Therefore, so am I. And now we come to it. Sabbath is not the issue. Jesus is the issue. Jesus made a splash there at the pool of Bethesda. He made a splash there in that little house on the seaside of Capernaum because Jesus was proclaiming in both healings with both lame men, Jesus was proclaiming, I am God. What? Verse 18. For this reason the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him because He not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. Equal with God. And and therefore, verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Jesus worked the Sabbath because the Father worked the Sabbath. Works of compassion and grace and mercy and healing and love springing in unlimited supply, flowing with the rest of God. And not just for the first person in the pool, but for anyone who will accept His divine rest. Jesus says, John 4.34, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. John 9.4, We must accomplish the works or we must work the works of Him who sent me as long as it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. John 14.10 Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does His works. Again, 24-7. 
It is a divine work that is at the same time restful, a work that brings peace and refreshment. And the Hebrew writer says, Hebrews 4.11, Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. But now, back to the two guys. Both lame men. Both different situations. One on Sabbath. One was not on Sabbath. And what Jesus did that really stirred up the scribes and the, and the Pharisees in both places was pronounced by His actions that He was God. How did He do that? When He healed the lame man in Capernaum, Mark chapter 2, verse 7, all of the Jews standing around, the leaders, said, why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sin but God alone? With the healings of both men, Jesus did something only God could rightfully do. Only God could forgive sin, as happened in Capernaum. Only God could continue to work on the Sabbath, as He did at the pools of Bethesda. noticed a Facebook post a girl who was in a youth group of mine years ago and it was just a little disappointing because she said I'm going to see Fifty Shades of Grey and Jesus still loves me and God still approves of me and it's all good and I haven't responded yet but I'm going to have you seen it? show hands I'm not going forward now. (laughs) Sin isn't just a slip-up. Sin isn't just, yeah, okay, we'll see that movie. Sin is paralyzing. Sin is, in the moment we commit it, a rejection of God. It's rebellion. And Jesus didn't die to save us from our goofs and our gaffes and our slip-ups. He died to heal us from the paralyzing nature of our sin. Are you going to put Him off today? Or will you let Him heal? That's really the question we end with. Rachel, you can come on up. Are you going to receive His offer of mercy and grace? You may be a Christian who's walked with the Lord for a while and you're caught up in some stuff that's just messy and ugly and sinful and you don't know what to do about it. Come and pray. No one knows. You know what? You don't even have to tell the prayer team what you need prayer for. God knows. Just come get some healing. You may not be a follower of Jesus today. I'll tell you what, this world is spinning out of control. We are in the end of the end times, the last days. And God, the only reason why we're still here this morning is God is so patient, God is so gracious as to wait for you. The Lamb of God has come through the sheep gate. He's come up to the house of grace. And right now He's saying, do you wish to get healed? Would you like to walk with Him into eternal salvation? That's the offer. It's amazing. And it's born out of the love and the grace of God. We're going to stand and sing while we sing. If you need healing of any kind, if you want to give your life to Jesus, if you'd like to be baptized, as I said, the waters are flowing and the waters are good.
please come forward while we stand and sing together. Let's stand.